Hello and welcome to season four of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. Me, Frank Talbot. And me, Chris Slowly. Hi, guys. Welcome back. It's been a, it's been a few months since we were all here. Uh, quick refresher for, for old listeners and um, a primer for new listeners. Mistakes Were Made. The broad concept is we speak to some of the best, most influential and interesting investors out there in the world today and ask them about the biggest mistakes they've made and crucially what they've learned from them. Uh, we've got a great season coming up, um, but before we get to some of the names, I think we should start with any mistakes that we might have made ourselves. I think it's been a few months, it's been some quite choppy months in the markets. Franco, um, kick, kick us off. What's the what's the worst thing that you've done uh, in the last four months? I don't I don't have an investment mistake uh, to make. Maybe it's an investment in my time mistake, but uh, after life mistake. You know, yeah, it's a, a a pretty 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 big life mistake. Um, since last series, I've got back into something I kicked, you know, nearly a decade ago, and that is football, or rather soccer, for our US listeners. I have been pretty smug about the fact that I was a reformed addict, <laughs> but uh, now I find myself, you know, down the rabbit hole of pointless YouTube videos, adding stress to my life. I'm not totally back to where I was, uh, but I can see it's a slippery slope. Not only that, but you know, you guys know this that I've got a young child. I get max probably you do too, two hours a day to myself. And some days I'm filling most of that with with something that doesn't help me unwind. Uh, I, I feel like this might be my midlife crisis. Oh, oh, no, no, no. That's still to come. Trust me, I think. You. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you got a, got a mistake of either your time, your life, investments? It's a weird it's parking ticket. I've got a real weird blind spot for getting parking tickets. I think that's a continual mistake. And also I drove down a road that cars aren't allowed to go down the other day. So I think, I don't know if the mistake is me getting old and weird or just forgetting how to drive, but it's definitely a mistake. How much are we racking up here? How many? How, how much have we paid in? 60 in quid a time. It's a very self-destructive habit. That is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I Two mistakes spring to mind. I might have bought a, uh, a flat at the top of the market so that you know something that's gonna you know be, be fun for me to watch over the next five years and then, and then related to the new the new flat um we did a family trip to ikea which i think in terms of an investment on your time is is one of the worst you can you can ever do with, with two small oh, children it's, it's a it's a mental physical and monetary maze and also the best test of your relationship yeah well that's as i say not it, was, it wasn't a great time for anyone so um good well those are our mistakes um but uh, luckily, we have guests who maybe have more more interesting mistakes, certainly mistakes uh, that involve larger sums of money. Um, before we get to those, though, we also have a new segment which puts our mistakes and our guest mistakes in context. Uh, we've, I don't know, teamed up or very kindly enlisted the services of Jamie Catherwood. Jamie, um, for those of you who don't know him, he works at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management here in the United States of America, but also he runs a very popular newsletter and website called Investor Amnesia, which is effectively sort of financial history, the history of financial markets. And uh, it's really good. If, if you haven't signed up, do sign up. He also, I believe, contributes to a podcast called Infinite Loops as well um, with his boss, Jim O'Shaughnessy. Uh, but for us, Jamie is doing a mini segment called It Could Be Worse, where he recounts sort of a big financial scandal or mistake from history. Uh, so this is the first one that he's done for us, which I think has a few life lessons uh, that we could all take away from. It's about something called the Poirier scandal. He describes it as the original fire festival, effectively a man um, selling land on an island that did exist, but was not an appealing place to go. So look, here is Jamie with It Could Be Worse, 
And do stick around because when Jamie's done with his segment, we'll be back to tee up our very special guests for this episode. The first, uh, the first one we're going to cover is the Poye scam uh, and bubble. It's the original fire festival. So in the 19th century, Scotsman Gregor McGregor was anointed the King of Conman by the economist for his audacious scam in the 1820s. But what did he do? Well, during the 1820s, many Spanish colonies fought for independence and McGregor was involved in Venezuela's war against Spain. After that war ended, he continued sailing around Latin America and South America, getting involved in kind of various skirmishes that were still going on. Then one day, McGregor found an uninhabited island near Honduras, except McGregor decided this clearly desolate jungle island was actually a country, which he named Poye. Going one step further, he then anointed himself the country's grand cacique and sailed back to England to launch his scam. When McGregor arrived in London, there was a speculative frenzy for Latin American securities at the time, as many newly independent countries floated bonds offering yields of up to 20%. With British bonds yielding just 3%, investors flocked to this Latin American debt in an effort to chase yield. So, in 1822, McGregor floated Poye bonds on the London Stock Exchange, offering a 6% yield. And again, this is an entirely made-up country that is, in reality, just an island that he found while sailing around. He spun endless lies to investors about Poye's beautiful opera houses, parliamentary buildings, cathedrals, and more. But again, Poye was just an uninhabited jungle. Nevertheless, investors enthusiastically purchased Poye bonds alongside other Latin American securities. And before long, offices were opened in London and Edinburgh to sell Poye land grants at four shillings an acre. Sadly, some took the drastic step of relocating to Poye based on McGregor's idyllic description. Scottish retirees exchanged their hard-earned savings for worthless Poye dollars and set sail for their new home. The Poye kingdom was then jolted back to reality after settlers arrived at their new home and found that instead of a beautiful oasis, they were met with malaria and jungle. 240 passengers took the perilous trip to Poye, and only 60 survived McGregor's nightmare. Yet McGregor himself managed to flee authorities and survive his fraud unscathed. Thank you very much indeed, Jamie. And as I said, Jamie will be joining us for every episode of this season for, for a short snippet of financial Schadenfreude. Uh, errors. Schadenfreude, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Now, look, before we get on to our main event, which is Josh Brown and Michael Batnick, a quick word about some of the guests we've got coming up. Frank, Chris, can I, can I hand over to you for, for some of the interviews that we, that we have in the can that you're most looking forward to hearing from? I'm very excited to hear from Desiree Fixler, who people may know was heavily involved with the greenwashing scandals that engulfed DWS last year. She was there. Well, hang on. She was involved in blowing the whistle. She was involved in blowing the whistle. Yeah. So she to hear from her about, um, well, basically the mistakes of people making ESG and sustainability more broadly, rather than just not just her personal experience, but also as somebody who's been inside the machine, what they think the major faults are. Frank, who are you looking forward to? We've also got a couple of uh, portfolio managers coming up. We've got Rajiv Jain at GQG Partners, uh, storied uh, global emerging markets manager. And we've also got uh, Hugh Young, an Asian equity manager, a veteran with a, an incredible career behind him. He's seen a lot of mistakes made, probably by himself and others. Yeah, it should be really good. And I think in all cases, everyone's been very candid in this, in this series so far, which is always nice. And, and that's that's the key, isn't it? So yeah, look, really looking forward to those. And also really looking forward to our guests today, Josh Brown and Michael Batnick of Rithalt's Wealth Management, I believe the CEO and um, head of research there. They also have their own podcast, have their own blogs as well, very much out there on social media for those of you who 
who who aren't aware, Google them, check them out on Twitter. Um, Frank, I think we felt perhaps a little underqualified in this, given that they are podcast professionals. And Michael has, in fact, written a book about famous investor errors. Uh, but they were very nice about it. They, 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 they let us pretend that we were in charge. Yeah, it, it and they answered our questions brilliantly. It definitely, it definitely had that feeling like there were times they were hosting us, which which is fine. It was great to see uh, such talent in action. Great to see how pros work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but really interesting mistakes from both of them. Uh, Josh, very stock specific. Um, some lessons there that we could all learn. I think uh, you know they, they understand that everyone's on this this investment journey, and they give some some pretty solid pointers. Mike actually has a warning for all you budding traders out there. In fact, they both really do. Yeah, I think so. And maybe may, may trading volumes down a bit this year compared to twenty 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 one. But um, yeah, great listen. Um, let's just let's get into it, and we will catch up with you all at the end. Josh, we'll kick off with you. Any investment mistakes? Ideally, the biggest and crucially. What did you What did you learn from it? New new investing mistakes uh, every year, and I shouldn't say new. A lot of them are repeats. There aren't that many mistakes you can make, but um, I can start with the biggest, or I could start with recent ones, or whatever you guys want me to do. What, what What's on let's, your mind? Let's 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 go biggest, and okay. then we'll go recent. So I actually did a chapter in my first book on my biggest investing mistake, and uh, I guess I'll give you the high level. And if you have questions, we can get more in depth, but. Um, I was a retail broker in 2006. It's a very long time ago. These were the days of Nelly Furtado and Will Ferrell movies, and you know it's a total ha- different time days, and place. Right? Yeah, yeah. Days, yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, great, 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 great era um, for for me personally. My daughter was born that year. I was a co-branch manager at a brokerage firm I worked at, and the way the retail brokerage business worked was you would build positions in individual stocks. And that's what clients were hiring you for. They were looking for stock ideas. And if you were a retail broker, you would pick 10 or 12 stocks and try to buy a lot of all of them. And hopefully the winners would do much better than the losers and your clients would be happy and you would make money. And that's just, that was that business model. So I started building a position in a company called Jamba Juice. And this was part of a wave of SPACs that came along in the middle of the aughts decade. And uh, the guy who brought this particular SPAC to market was the former head of Blockbuster Video, which now sounds hilarious, but in the, you know 2005, 2006, he's still considered to be a giant, a corporate giant. Anyway, he brings this SPAC out and acquires Jamba Juice from in the private market. And I'm in it the entire time, starting from when it was a SPAC, uh, and basically, it turned into the biggest fiasco of my entire investing career. But so many of the things that I did wrong became seminal uh, investing lessons for me. And I don't think I would be where I am today had I not lived through that two-year period. But basically, um, the highest le- at the highest level, the big mistakes I had made, um, I really got personally invested in the story. And I told the story to everyone I knew. I had a ton of my own money in it. I had client money in it. And when you get that personally invested in something working out, it's impossible to back out. It's impossible to change your mind. And being that publicly in love with uh, an investment idea and being so uncompromisingly um, committed to it uh, is like the, the, the root of 
the the destruction of what ended up happening. And I'm not going to like get into the whole thing, but it was a stock that went from like 13 to a dollar basically and took me down with it, my business, my practice, many of my clients, my family, uh, you know, my own money more than anyone else's and it like wasn't until the bitter end that I that I finally conceded and said I was wrong on this. Um, <laughs> but it was way too late and I've never done it again. And uh, it, there were some hilarious reasons why it didn't work out, which if we have time, we can get into. I guess one thing really quick, did you like the juice a lot? Was what, you know, did, was, was that a big factor in this? I really thought it was going to be the next Starbucks. I don't, I don't, I didn't, like the product is fine. Um, <laughs> but it was almost like an act, there were acts of God during this trade. Like, I, I'm not even like joking around. There were like, um, there was an orange crop freeze that affected like half the country. There was a bee shortage. They were blaming like a bee shortage. There was um, there was a listeria outbreak in ten of their stores, similar to like what Chipotle went through. Like it was like one thing after another after another, and this stock just refused to cooperate with my grand ambitions. But what I really thought there, I was doing is there a part of you that's, that still thinks like it could have worked out, you know? dude? I thought <laughs> I was buying a twelve dollars stock that was going to go to fifty and change my clients' lives, my life. Like it was. Looking back, it was like it was it was not just stupid but childish. Like it was very emotional. And then when people would argue or disagree with me, I almost like couldn't bear to stay in the same room with them. Um, and I did it to myself. Like the, nobody like did a it sport, to me. Almost like a like a sports team. You were sort of you know just too, yeah. too sort of passionate. Yeah, it became like a religion that this thing was going to work out. And again, like I wrote a whole chapter in a book about this. It's something I've been very open about, and I think it was really important for me to live through that experience. And I never have done anything like that since. I use stop, so I use stop what, losses What have now. you changed afterwards? Like when, when you see an investment opportunity now, what, what are your telltale signs of things not to do that you did that time, apart from falling okay, in love with Okay, that's it? a great question. So, so three things. The first is I am very clear with myself and if I'm talking to someone else about the difference between a trade and an investment. I never go into a trade without a predefined exit. I use stop losses a lot, like liberally use stop losses. The only time that doesn't work is a gap down open where it, it goes through your price and you just have to, you know, it's stocks, there's risk. Like you just have to live with that. Um, but when I'm buying something and I'm saying, this is not an investment, I just think, you know, it got too cheap or it's breaking out technically or whatever. Here is the level at which the market tells me I'm wrong and usually that's going to be a moving average or a support level or whatever. And the exit is planned before the entry. And you have to live with it. And you have to take a lot of losses if you're trading. Investing, one of, the thing, one of my big takeaways from that experience is I never, ever buy a, a whole investment at one price. So I say to myself, I like Berkshire Hathaway um, at $150 a share, the B shares. I'll, I'll buy a third of what I want to own in total. And I will literally root for the stock to sell off. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. It almost never happens. Almost all of the time, my initial purchase is not the best price. So going into a, an investment with the humility of understanding that it's very possible you're not buying it at the best price is so, so important. Um, and then the last thing is I really don't average down which is something I had done in Jamba, um, buying it at 12, 14, 16, then back at 12, then at eight, then at five. I don't do that anymore. 
Um, if I have a stock that's out of favor and I understand the fundamental challenges with why it's out of favor, I don't just automatically say, well, let me lower my price. Um, I am perfectly content to let the rest of my portfolio go up and let a stock that I'm not planning to sell gradually shrink in importance to the overall portfolio rather than just knee-jerk, well, let me buy more. The market's wrong. I'm right. I really don't do that anymore. So those are three things that I've taken away from that experience that have really helped me over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. Thanks. That's, that's, that's brilliant, Josh. Uh, Michael, I'm aware that you're, you're there. Uh, we haven't brought you in yet. He's so bored feel, of listening you know. to me talk. You yeah, no exactly. Idea. Yeah, he's, he's read this. Does this every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like, I thought this would be fun, guys. Um, so, uh, Michael, Jamba Juice for you? Anything? Well, what, what's the, he what's was the in high school at the time. <laughs> um, he was most... the one customer that was <laughs> propping up the stock. All right. So mistakes. Yes. Mistakes were made by me. Many, many mistakes. Luckily, I avoided the big mistake. Um, but I think that investors are a product of their early experiences in the market. When you got started has an outsized influence on how you think. And I think that's almost universal. Um, and it's hard to shake. So, for example, when I started trading, I don't, wouldn't even denigrate the word investing. When I started trading, it was, I think, uh, call it 09, maybe 2010. I was working as a, uh, <laughs> as, a, as a temp. I was a temporary employee at Citigroup, the irony. And I was on my BlackBerry walking around the halls, going to the stalls of the bathroom and trading on my BlackBerry. Very disciplined. Uh, I guess TD, very disciplined. Uh, that must have been awkward. Well, well, he, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I was inside the bank, shorting the banks. I was buying F8 because I saw what was going on. No, only kidding. But I, I knew that we were in a recession. I knew that the banks had blown up. And that's, all, that's you know, more or less all that I knew. So I bought FAZ, which was the three-time bear ETF for banks. <laughs> and what you wanted to be buying, unbeknownst to me, was FAS, the three-time bull. Because... I was shorting banks after they crashed 95% and the prices were going against me. I didn't understand what I was doing. Right. Well, I thought we were in a recession. Don't stocks go down in a recession? So I did that and I was just trading my butt off. I was on stock twits on Twitter, learning about like uh, Paul Tudor Jones and Jack Schwager, or reading all those books. And one thing that hit home very, very early was the importance of discipline, especially if you're going to be trading you can't get wiped out. So you have to have some, some level of risk management. And I was really good at that, especially for somebody that didn't know anything. Like if that was all I knew, I was okay. The problem was I was afraid to make money. And mm. it took me a long time to realize that. Um, I had been burned so many times early on by my students. You mean you were selling winners before they had the chance yes. to really make you a lot of money? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I did that over and over and over. And now, if you recall back to 2010, things were really choppy. There was double dip recession talks all over the place. Elevated vets. Europe was going into it again. Yeah. So, so if things just went up a bit, you'd be like, that's enough for me. I, I'll take it rather than Well, not only that, I was, or... I was terrified of turning a winner into a loser, right? I had read too many investing quotes, I think. <laughs> I think that's what did me in. So it was not death by a thousand cuts because I didn't really lose much money. I, I didn't take any, I didn't blow any holes in my portfolio. I never was like, um, all right, you know what? Uh, this is going to be the big winner. So I was very quick to take losses, but I was also way too quick to take gains. 
And I did read as well that you spent a ton of money on trading costs as well. Oh my God. This. Oh my God. I forgot about this. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I walked into the branch one time of TD Ameritrade and they like rolled out the red carpet. You know, they, they said, hold on. What's your name? Let me check your account. Let me go back, talk to my manager. They came back like, Mr. Batnick. I was like 25 and terrible balding head of hair and just an absolute mess of a human being. Um, eyes were probably bloodshot. And they're like, uh, I'm like, what, what, what is, yeah, me? What, what's up? So they're like, would you consider a managed account? And I said, sir, sir, I think I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, tur- he, swung, he swung the screen around. This is before trading costs were at zero. I don't remember what the number was. It was but I it was still like $10 commissions or something, right? Back then? Yeah, so I, I, I legitimately think I probably spent tens of thousands of dollars on trading. I, think, I, feel, I feel like I read like 12 grand, but I can't remember. Okay, that sounds that's... about right. That sounds about right. You, you know you're, um, too, you so know yeah, you're too good of a customer when they're, they're like, how would you like to see Siegfried and Roy tonight? In the, uh, I was trading like, exactly like, 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 like there was no, we got a chopper go to Vegas right now, Michael. Yeah. It's, it's yours. So here was the, here was the, the process. I would buy a stock and then I would stare at the screen as hard as I could. And when I made, that, actually, that does actually work. That helps. That helps. It no, go that's, up. that's it's, where the alpha, that's where the alpha is. Yeah. And then when you get to your number, I have a friend I'm who grew a foot that way. Just by like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta try hard, right? If you're not trying, you're not doing anything. And then I would, when I would hit my number, whatever, $200, boom, out. Yeah, the, you know that's a that's a mentality though that I think like a lot of a lot of young people when they start off as trading, they like think they're supposed to do that. They think it's like blackjack, like all right, next hand, next all right, I won this hand, next hand, and I I understand that mentality because when you first start, you really don't know anything. So why wouldn't you think that? So I I got to the point. One of the things that that my absolute saving grace was I kept a trading diary. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not a self-bullshitter. I'm very honest with myself, probably to a fault. I, I don't like exude confidence. And so inner confidence either. And so I would write down my trade. I would write down the reason, the price, and the result. And I did that for about a year, maybe a little bit longer. And I would read periodically what had happened. I would review my, my trades. And it was a joke. Like I was, I was literally laughing and also embarrassed for myself and it's difficult to lie to yourself, which I think a lot of people do. They have no concept of where they got in, where they got out, how much money they're actually up, why they thought they got in. They, they misremember their logic, right? Um, but I couldn't because it was my own handwriting. And eventually, I got to the point where I said, all right, I get it. I get it. This is hard. I've banged my head against the wall 4,000 times. It hurts. And I didn't want it to hurt anymore. And so eventually, I stopped playing that game. And just what? And just started buying index funds, and just more or less. Now I still mess around. I probably bought too much crypto. Um, I bought some stupid NFTs, and I still do all of that bullshit. But I do it in a way that is satisfying and fun, even if I'm losing money. I'm in it for the juice. I'm in it for the action. Um, and so I'm not the same juice I, that jo- Josh was in. Not for the that, same so. juice. The action yeah, is is my juice. Yeah. But I'm eating my vegetables. I'm maxing out all my accounts and index funds. I'm buying every two weeks in my taxable account. And so once I've done that, yeah, did I lose too much money? Like more than I would care to admit? Yes. But are my kids still going to camp? Yeah, everything's fine, right? So I still do that, um, but I'm responsible first. In a way, in a way, there is a similar lesson there from, to, to Josh's as well, which is you've, you, you're not emotionally invested in all that trading. You've sort of taken it off to one side. That's fun. And then your actual kind of, core competency, you know, 
you know, I've graduated from I've graduated from mistakes on a daily basis, right? Because I obviously have a job. I don't. It's not what I believe, and I don't do that anymore. But I still speculate my butt off. Maybe I'll stop one day. Not my butt. That's See, an you and I are so like, you, know, you and I are so different because like I don't get any enjoyment at all out of casinos. I don't do Vegas. Um, yeah, I, love I don't it. play call. Like I just I I've done it, but like I do it for an hour. They bring me a drink. I play like blacks, and then it's like. My wife will text me like, "All right, we have din- we have dinner reservation." Okay, I walk out. I don't ever want to go back for the rest of the night. I'm there till th- I'm I have, there till I have friends that are like, they like, I can't wait for my wife to fall asleep. I'm going back downstairs. So I don't understand it. It's not my mentality. And so like, with with like, um, this has actually not helped me in crypto. My mentality with crypto is just like, I'm at a dollar cost average, and I'm going to be a hodler just in case all these assholes are right and I'm wrong. And so I did that, and it, like it doesn't work. You have to trade speculative assets. Uh, maybe I'm just saying that recency bias because they went down. I disagree. But like NFTs to me, like it was an, for, like for me, this was one that was easy to avoid because I don't believe in anything that doesn't have cash flow. I don't trade commodities either. I I collect cash flows. Like I have stocks that I've owned for 20 years, individual com- and. That's my collection. I'd rather have something that's paying me a 3% dividend every year, raising the dividend, um, and has the potential for share price appreciation than a picture of some bullshit that no one else sees except for me when I open my phone. That's like not even a hard choice for me. So I, I've lost money in the last year on speculative stuff. I owned a bunch of stupid stocks, blah, blah, blah. But like I'm definitely not of the mentality of like a gambler. Maybe I would have been better off if I were because I would have sold a lot of what stuff. Do you, what do you, what do you think some it. of the mistakes like broadly that people are making right now in this current market that, let's face it, in the US, you guys just haven't seen it for over a decade? Well, it's been, it's been, it's been a bull market for the last decade. And so I think people got out over their skis, overestimated their risk tolerance. And uh, we are now clearly on the other side of that, right? There's no longer monetary uh, or easy monetary policy. The Fed is not coming to save you. And I think a lot of people are learning lessons that eventually we all This is going to sound pedantic, um, but I'm going to say it anyway. There, there, there's been an, an influx of a new generation of investors, and I think that's great, of course. Like instead of spending all the time saying all the things I'm supposed to say, just imagine I said them. A lot of them are dipshits, and that's fine. I was too when I started. When I was 21, 22, I blew up. To be fair, the market needs Yeah, some, I lost all know. my money in 2000 on dot-com stocks. I was 19. I didn't know anything. Like, that's fine. No, no criticism. Um, the difference, I think, though, between now and then is now, like, a lot of them think that they're really smart. And I think a lot of lessons have been learned this year that nobody's as smart as they think they are. Um and there's like a lot of basic stuff. Like for me, I had been through waves of the SPAC nonsense before. I just described uh, j- the Jamba SPAC. So maybe I could have been wrong and all these SPACs could have turned out to have worked out. But I just knew it wasn't going to be that way. The other like big thing that I understood that I think a lot of young people don't is that Wall Street will bury you in supply. So whatever you're excited about, whatever the crowd is into, they will keep making it until you drown. Like these are things that you have to see it two or three times and lose money personally 
to see it coming the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time. So there were some very obvious ways to not lose money that I think I understood this time. I still lost money in things like everyone else. I'm invested in the market. The market went down. But like I, I'm not taking the knockout punch in anything. A lot of people are taking the knockout punch. I think it will work out well for them over time if they care to look at what they did like Michael has and like I have and just been like, all right, what did I do wrong? And then for God's sake, get off Twitter. Get out of the stupid discords. This is the blind leading the blind. Nobody knows anything. Just like read some books of people who have invested. Like stop listening to your peers. Your peers are idiots. Like it's so important that people like step away from the computer and the phone and just like read a few books on investing. Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, how, how do you walk off the mistakes? So these people, they started in 2020, it's been great. And then obviously it's been terrible. Uh, you know, what, what kind of survival guide tips have you got for people who make mistakes? Because you, you're, you're going to continue to make mistakes, even if you've read the book. That's a good question. Yeah. So what? So what's? A, so we have to define what a mistake is. Is a mistake losing money in the market? No, of course not. If the market goes down, you you know you're not a guy. You're gonna lose money. Um, a mistake is is being too concentrated, obviously using leverage, chasing you know FOMO, all those sort of things. But the thing that you have to avoid, and all of those not you know the, the the unforced errors, they'll happen from time to time. They still happen to me from time to time. Um, but what you have to avoid is the big mistake. And what I mean by that is the mistake you can't come back from, not just financially, because for young people, even if they wipe out a $10,000 account, yeah, it can be devastating, but it won't ruin their life, right? The, their financial life, their career is still all ahead of them. However, it can ruin them psychologically because if you get to the mentality of it's rigged oh, so or this is just so my luck, say more, say more, that sort of, that, that sort of stuff you can't shake off. And it stays with you, and it's really hard to dig out of that dark hole because you find others, misery loves company, you get stuck down a 12-mile rabbit hole of miserable assholes, and that is impossible almost to pull yourself out of. So you have to you join the wrong, avoid join the, the wrong tribe, for that reason. And it becomes part of your identity. Right. You know how many comic book right. supervillain uh, finance assholes there are <laughs> uh, running around on like social media, whatever, just trying to poison everyone around them and – Everything's a scam and everything's rigged and nobody's going to make money. Every great fortune in America has been built via real estate and stocks, all of them. Nobody built a fortune based on how much they make an hour. It's just – it's impossible. So it's just not true. But I can understand how you could get into that hole um, and believe that, especially – Oh, that hole, that, hole, that hole is well lubricated. It's all over the place. You guys can, you guys can, you guys can edit that out, right? <laughs> what? What you just said. That, I mean, that's insane. Why would you say that on a podcast? You know, these guys are reporters, right? I, that's going to be that. That's going to be the yeah, name of the episode. Everybody with the headline. That's yeah. You know. Dude, that's a, that, that, that's uh, that, like honestly, it's going to say that's on Michael yeah. Batnick, which is the right word. colon. Yeah. That that I'm not even going to repeat it because I don't want I don't want my. That's on that's on you, not me. Uh, WD forty is a great lubricant. I don't know okay. what you're talking about. So uh, meant anyway, in industrial sense. Adding to Josh's point about. Just stop uh, about building wealth. It also it happens over time. You can't hurry it. You have to give it time. And so the only way that you're that you allow compound interest to work, which is like the thing that everybody quotes, is it takes decades. You're not going to get rich in an hour. And I think that is one of the things. One of the biggest takeaways from what we just lived through is people thought they could they could short circuit reality, and they couldn't. Fantastic. Well, that was our interview with Josh and Michael. And thanks both of those very much for, for taking part. 
a lot in there. Franco, any any big lessons that you took from that particularly? Uh, apart from how to host a podcast, uh, I thought um, I thought what I really liked was having the humility to understand you're never going to buy the bottom, or if you do, it's it's complete chance. And I think those are words that speak to me, and and probably anyone watching markets at the moment. I mean, it's it's fun to be sitting there in cash looking at it, but a good buying opportunity is a good buying opportunity, and that's something that we should all sort of take under our hat. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very um... Take on board, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I thought it was a very good point, and, and you're right. Very, very sort of apposite, given given where markets are in the moment, and, and everyone's sort of watching for, for 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 when they think you know now's the time to pile in, and it's all going up from here. Uh, something I like that they said is this, this discipline about when to sell. Uh, people have spoken about this before, but having a predetermined price where you're going to sell for for trading specifically, this is, um, and then yeah, ta- tangentially, is sort of a fear of doing well. Uh, you know, rather the fear of turning your winners into losers. So you ultimately you cut and run before you've made the bulk of the money. You had you had a reason for investing at the, at the beginning and you should have held on. Not running your winners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I thought very quickly lastly, sort of a couple of relevant things or sort of oddly uh, timely again, as we're seeing lots of these SPACs um, die this year after the hype of sort of 2020, 2021. Interesting, Josh kind of having learned that lesson uh, the you know, years and years ago, uh, and, so, and so sort of seeing some of that noise for what it was um, was interesting. The jumper, the jumper, uh, and spack. also he, the jump, the jumper juice spack. Yeah, 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 exactly. And also, I think he mentioned that you know there was an unholy series of events, including like a sort of crop freeze on oranges that year, which is something that's also happening in in Florida at the moment in the wake of the storm. So odd here, history doesn't repeat itself, but but to use a cliche, it it sometimes rhymes. I believe is what people say. Um, but look. I thought it was very enjoyable. Thank you again to Josh and Michael for taking part. Um, And it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. 